0: Uh, 1-19 to Then Agrippa said to Paul You have permission to speak for yourself So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee, and now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O King, as I was on the road, I saw light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads." Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven.
1: Good morning, good to be uh, with you here once again at Lum, and uh to share with you the Word of God. Sorry, I'm on my own. My wife isn't too well. Um, She's been ill for the last few days, but my son is with her. But uh, anyway, uh, it's uh, it's good to be here. And uh, the Lord is good. Thank you, uh, Ian and Debbie, for that song. Um, I needn't preach, really. You've just about done it all, but there we are. Uh, What I want to talk to you about this morning is Conversion. Um, you've got there the uh, testimony of the Apostle Paul you get it a number of times, three times I think in the Acts of the Apostles one when uh, it's related uh, and a couple of times the testimony and you get various references uh, in the writings of Paul concerning uh, how he found Christ as Saviour uh, the Apostle is giving his testimony here before King Agrippa and the Roman governor Festus But you know, it seems to me we need to ask a question, particularly in the days in which we're living. What do we mean by conversion? Because if you were to take the word by itself, without any trimmings, without adding any explanation, any knowledge, any teaching, it would simply mean a complete change of mind. If you look in the dictionary, it would be to change one's attitude or belief. Now, that's a definition, but it's obviously very, very bare. And certainly in the Christian context, it seems to me that it needs filling out. don't know whether you're familiar with this book. Some of you may be, Uh, published uh, not all that long ago. And it's by um, a man, uh, Professor Anthony Flew. It's an interesting thing. If you had wanted somebody to champion atheism in the 1950s, you wouldn't have gone to Richard Dawkins, you wouldn't have gone to the new atheist. you would have gone to this man. Because his teaching on atheism actually set the agenda um, for that particular period. He was a, a professor of um, uh, theology. And then something happened at the turn of the century. He actually was converted from atheism to theism. In other words, from not believing in God to believing in God. And he then wrote this book. There is, it's crossed out the word, no, there is a God. And this is the interesting thing. Now, I'm not preaching apologetics this morning because at the end of the day, I'm not all that convinced that it does all that much. It takes you so far and no father. But what's interesting to me is he never actually became a Christian. He said, throughout his uh, professional life, he followed that Socratic principle, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And he came to the conclusion that there is a God after years of uh, propagating atheism. But he never actually became a Christian, by his own admission, he tells you in the end of the book. His father was a Methodist minister. He must have been quite high up in Methodism uh, because he became president of the Methodist Conference. So Flew knew all about the Christian religion, but what he said was this. He had never, to quote those famous words of John Wesley, uh, you remember John Wesley, when he got converted, he was at Aldersgate, and uh, somebody, w- it was a, a little meeting of the Holy Club, and somebody was reading from the preface of Martin Lew- um, Luther's uh, Epistle to the Romans. And he said, my heart was strangely warmed. Now, Flew will tell you in his book, and he quotes that, he said, I never ever experienced that. I never experienced that salvation, I never experienced that close communion with God. In fact, for years I was an atheist, he changed from that to, a th- to theism, he be- believed in God, but that was as far as it went. I-, I don't know whether you saw it, it was on the other night, it was inside the Vatican, I, I didn't see the whole of it, I- you know you flick through the telly, don't you, when you've nothing to do and... When you're retired like me, you you do quite a bit of flicking. Uh, And um, uh, I flicked on. It was the last 20 minutes of this program inside the Vatican. And there was a young man there, very beautiful voice. And he was actually singing within the actual Vatican uh, an, an actual mass that was taking place before the Pope. And the place was crowded with cardinals and uh, and a congregation and all the rest of it later on the the interviewer said to him, and I think it's very strange thing to say, "Do you believe in god and he said, "I don't really understand what you mean by that question." he said, "Well well do you believe in god he said I don't really understand the question, He said, all I know is that when I'm singing, and he was singing in this liturgy, uh, taking part in this Mass in all his robes, all his vestments, when, when I sing the liturgy, somehow I feel a sense of the transcendence. So you begin to ask yourself the question, well, There seems to be an awful lot of confusion when it comes to God and when it comes to religion and certainly when it comes to this business of Christianity. He was converted, there's no doubt about that, he was converted from atheism to theism. But he certainly wasn't converted to Christianity. Whether he ever became a Christian, I don't know. uh, Because um, Tom Wright also wrote a a sequel to this and he was a friend of his. And he, 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 as you know, is an evangelical and maybe he got converted. I don't really know. But the point I'm asking this morning, what is Christian conversion? What is it really? And so my thoughts went toward the apostles. Perhaps, well, uh, Flew actually says about the Apostle Paul, he said, you know, even though I'm not a Christian, he said, Christianity is head and shoulders above all other religions. He said, no other religion has the charismatic figure of Jesus Christ and the absolute top brilliant intellect of the Apostle Paul. And I think he's absolutely bang on on that. So what do we mean when we talk about Christianity? And I wanted to come to the apostles' conversion because it seems to me there are certain principles here that are prevalent within all our conversions. You see, if you were to give your testimony this morning, say each one of us were to come up here in turn and were to give our testimonies, all our testimonies of how we found Christ would be very, very different. No two would be alike. And yet, these are the details of conversion. These are the details of how we came to know the Savior. You see, whereas the details of conversion may differ, the actual broad principles, the essential elements in a true Christian experience of conversion, it seems to me, are always the same. And you will find them in the words here, or the experience of the Apostle, that there are certain principles common to every experience of God. The details are different. You know, you, you were to give your experience, I were to give my experience, they'd be very, very different. Our backgrounds would be very, very different. And yet these are the details, the underlying principles, the great essential principles of conversion, it seems to me, are the same. And this is the amazing thing about it. Even though the details are interesting, and they are, and even though God deals with us as individuals, and he does, just in a series uh, of studies for a church in Blackpool, Uh, And I took the way that Christ deals with people as individuals, the way he's so flexible, the way he seems to tailor the situation to meet our particular needs. And he does that with all of us in our lives. And yet, when it comes to those cardinal principles of conversion, it seems to me they're the same for each and every one of us. And it doesn't matter this morning whether you are an Adam An Abraham, a Jacob, a Luther, a Calvin, a Wesley, or you or I, you will find these principles, it seems to me, that will be present. The first thing I want you to notice about the Apostle's conversion here is this, that he has a vision of Christ. Now obviously this was something special for a man who was to be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And yet behind that vision was the reality of which we've all experienced. Now I've been a a Pentecostal pastor for over 50 years. And I think I've seen just about every extreme that it's possible uh, to actually witness without going into them. And so I'm not easily taken in. And when somebody comes to me and says, I've had a vision of Christ, I tend to take it with a pinch of salt. Now maybe that's me who needs liberating, I don't know, but you take it as you will. And yet one day when I was pastoring Blackburn, when a young Muslim lad, teenage lad, came up to me for the first time and said, I've had a vision of Christ and I've become a Christian and I want to join your church. And he explained what had happened, told me all about it, And I had to confess, I believed him. I believed him. It was something that he needed because of his personal situation and circumstances. Now, I doubt if any of us here this morning have actually had a Damascus Road experience. I certainly haven't. And yet at the same time, even though we may not be talking about a vision, we may be, we're talking about that encounter with the living God, that encounter with the Christ that somehow removed the scales from our eyes. Or to quote Wesley again as he listened to that reading from the preface to the epistle to the Romans, my heart was strangely warmed. If we really want to know what it is all about, you've only got to think of that 18th verse, that commission that the Apostle Paul was given, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This removal of the scales. You know, what we don't appreciate sometimes is that man by nature by what he is in himself is antipathetic to the grace of God, that somehow there, there is a stronger version when you talk about God. You can't help it. You mustn't judge him for it. It's part and parcel of his nature. We were born like that. It's a bent of the mind. It's a bent of the will. We've got this idea that some people are born religious and other people aren't. I remember as a a teacher, um, I remember the uh, head of PE coming up to me and saying, oh, I went to church Sunday morning for the first time in years. He said, never again. I said, what do you mean, never again? What, what, What was wrong? Oh, he was so boring. Oh, he was terrible. It was absolutely excruciating. I said, well, how long was it? An hour. An hour, and it was excruciating. I said, well, perhaps you need to find another church. He said, it's all right for you. He said, you're religious. He said, I'm not. I said, well, if you think that. I said, you don't really know me said you should have seen me before I was converted I was converted as a young man of 24 years of age and God took hold of me turned me inside out upside down and back to front didn't know what hit me I said but I've not always been like that far from it if I was to really give you my testimony So we need to get rid of that idea that somehow, oh, I I know that some people are more religious. I I mean, I used to notice that in school assemblies. The girls would sing the hymns, and the boys would deliberately not. I remember one assembly, the the lads decided to have a a bit of fun. So they all started singing the hymn in their broken, you know, (laughs) teenage voices and all the girls giddled. But you know, that I'm not denying that. But I'm talking about something different. The Bible says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But then God breaks in and you get that divine elapse into the soul whereby you know that God has dealt with you. You've had an experience somehow, call it what you you want, you can say well the penny dropped, you can say the scales were removed, you can say whatever way you want to explain it. And somehow you knew that God had dealt with you and that he dealt with you savingly. And you are born again of the Holy Spirit of God. The apostle puts it this way. Because as I say, his testimony was unique to him. He says that I might apprehend that for which I was apprehended. Well, certainly God got hold of him, didn't he? He's on the road to Damascus, breathing threatenings and slaughter. About to exterminate the church at Damascus. And God intervenes and grabs hold of him. him. And his life is completely changed and it became the great apostle to the Gentiles. That I might apprehend. You may not have been apprehended in that way. I think particularly if you're brought up in a Christian home, it's not always easy to point to the particular moment when you found Christ as Saviour when you actually found him for yourself. I found with my own family, there came a time when they had to find Christ for themselves. They couldn't rely on my experience, that I might apprehend that for which I was apprehended. I remember as a young teacher at Fleetwood Grammar School, I was driving down the promenade, and I was singing the top of my voice, and um, uh, not really paying attention. And then all of a sudden the black car pulled in front. They were always black in those days. and uh, But they they still had a light on top that said stop. Uh, And a man in black got out. And he walked up toward me. He said good evening. I said it was. (laughs) You see I was apprehended. That was the case with the mighty apostle. It does it in different ways. I, I, I've heard people say, I wish my conversion had been like this, or I wish it had been like that. You know, forget that. How it happened isn't important. The fact that it has, that's the thing that really does count. The second thing I want you to notice, and I'm watching the clock, from this particular experience of Paul's, Have you noticed how the Apostle was prepared beforehand? Even though he's journeying to Damascus, even though he's intent on the extermination of of believers, punishing Christians, it says, he hears, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats, the pricks. That's what it means. When, when, when the um, ox was going uh, in a, a wrong direction, uh, the man would prick it and, uh, and make it go back, you know, when it was being stubborn and wanting to go its own way. And that is, of course, what the Apostle Paul was doing. I'm almost inclined to say, well, the Apostle Paul's conversion began at that particular spot, but I don't think it did. You could possibly say it began at the martyrdom of Stephen. you remember how he stood by looking after the clothes when Stephen was martyred? Looking after the clothes of those who were stoning him? There was a training even long before that. It talks in verse 4 about my manner of life from my youth. It talks about the fact, if you were to read his conversion in Acts 22... He was a citizen of Tarsus, a Roman citizen, taught at the feet of Gamaliel. And, uh, of course, uh, Gamaliel was the best teacher possible, the actual profoundest rabbi of his day. And the Apostle Paul was a model student. He says, according to the strictness of our father's law, zealous toward God, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. You know, we've got this idea sometimes that the Pharisees, they were all somehow uh, hypocrites. They weren't. Some of them were, were, were very righteous people. They were some of the most moral that Israel had ever known and produced. It comes from a root word, actually meaning purity. Versed in the Old Testament law, knowing the word of God. So the process of conversion, it seems to me, began from his early days. But then that conviction, it must have been conviction, when when he stood by and saw Stephen martyred, that must have actually stayed with him. And even though he may not have admitted it, it must have stayed with him uh, day by day. Stephen, I don't know if ever thought about it, removed in the very prime of his usefulness. Have you ever asked why? There can only be one answer, and that is Saul of Tarsus, the conversion of this man. Blaspheming, exceedingly mad In my obsession against them Putting many of the saints in prison And when they were put to death I cast my vote against them Many a time I went from one synagogue to another To have them punished I tried to force them to blaspheme In my obsession against them I even went to foreign cities To persecute them That's verses 9-11 to 11. But all the time, the Lord God is working in the man's soul. It wasn't just something felt on the road to Damascus, but day in and day out. And you think of it, the blood that had to be spilt and I'm talking not, not about the blood of Jesus, but I'm talking about the blood of the martyrs, the people that he persecuted in order to bring that man to Christ. Who knows what it takes to bring a, a person to the Savior, the workings of God in the sovereign counsel of the living God, the atoning blood of Jesus, yes. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The necessity of the persecution of others, in his case, in order to bring him to Christ. He did it, I says, in ignorance, he says, and unbelief. But I obtained mercy. I think it was St. Augustine who said, Stephen never prayed, Father, forgive them. He said, Paul had never preached. I only know this, that there is a background to every conversion. And that background is in eternity. The secret counsel of God, and we won't escape it. He's called by name, by the way. Saul, Saul. Jesus knew all about him. Let me just apply this, because unless we fail on the application, there's no real real point. When you first found Christ, when you first encountered him, when you first came to the place in your experience where you realized that Jesus was Lord, that he was the Redeemer, what Ian was saying earlier on, that he was the means of access to the Father. You know, no man comes to the Father, said, Jesus, except by me. When that first came to you as a realisation, was that the first time that Christ dealt with you? Was that the first dealings of God you had in your life? I suspect not. The fathers used to call it provenient grace. God's grace, active in human lives before conversion. Remember when my mother got converted? Well, it started off. Around a grave, the grave of Manan. Manan was a lapsed Catholic. she'd married a non-Catholic, hadn't been anywhere. And so when she died, we were looking for somebody to take the the ceremony. And uh, we didn't know what to do, and next door neighbours said, well, there's a man down the road, a vicar, I don't know quite what he is, but he's a man of the cloth. Um, Why don't you ask him? He's very, you know. So we did. We didn't know at the time that he was a believer, that he was a Christian, and we were all standing round the grave. And the coffin was lowered, and my mother started to weep. And the man went over to her and he gave her a leaflet and she thanked him for it. Of course it went into the box of memorabilia as these things do. Years later the a 24 year old teacher I got converted and I went down to London, where my parents were living at that particular time you know every time there was a school holiday I wasn't married at that time I would go down and spend time with them but now I got converted I wanted to share it I wanted my mum and dad to be saved and so I remember witnessing to my mother and telling her about Jesus and getting so excited about the Redeemer and there she was feeding the budgie not listening to me And I thought she's not, you know, taking a blind bit of notice. But then I went back to Fleetwood. And apparently she went up to her bedroom. She opened a box of memorabilia. She took out this gospel tract that had been given to her years before. And I want to tell you, it told her how to get converted, how to get saved. And it included the sinner's prayer. And she knelt by her bed and gave her life to Christ. That is what I mean by prevenient grace. The grace that goes before. God working in the life. Long before we actually come to that place where we accept him as our Lord and our God. Happened with my father. How are we doing for time? Are you all right for time? What have you got in the oven? Have you got a roast in the oven? Have you? No you sure don't want you to burn your roast Okay, where were we but my dad oh he was a hard nut a real hard nut to crack I went down full of enthusiasm witnessing to him followed him from room to room he'd be shaving it's a wonder he didn't slit his throat he said I'm very worried about you son he said you're getting religious mania He said, I don't mind you going once on a Sunday. He said, but you're always going on about it. He says, there's no let up. Well, I went back to Fleetwood. I thought, not got very far. The next time I went down to London, he said to me, where does it say the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord? Well, I didn't know. I know now. But he didn't know then. And it turned out that the Holy Spirit had been directing him past this little gospel church. And he was looking to see if they'd changed the notice outside. And it happened to be on this occasion, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the Spirit used to take him past that little gospel mission out of his way as he's driving up to London in order to see if the text had been changed. We went up to London. I said, Dad, I'd like to go to church. She said, let's go to Westminster Abbey. Oh, I said, I'd like something a little bit more. He said, I'll take you to a church. He took us to that little gospel mission. Everything went wrong on that occasion. The wind kept blowing in. There was a gale. Like, like this morning. Do you have a gale here? Oh my goodness me. This morning. I I, I thought. There won't be any fair weatherers there this morning. It kept blowing in. The pulpit nearly fell over. The preacher was just about as bored. A bit, a bit like this morning. You know. Putting everybody to sleep. And there was a man sitting behind me. Dad. Young lad. And he full of a cold and he kept blowing his nose ah. oh my way like the trumpet voluntary and I thought oh my dad's not going to he's not going to appreciate this then at the end of the service he said to me wasn't that wonderful you never know do you have you taken somebody to church and wish you hadn't because everything went wrong that morning you know, it was a terrible thing. And then, then, then on the morning when everything goes right, you've nobody with you. Ever been there? The following week, he said, let's go to Windsor Castle. We went to Windsor Castle. And there was a man there, a billboard, prepare to meet thy God. And he had another message of doom on his top hat. Oh, I thought this is all dad needs, you know. I'll tell you something, because something is done badly, doesn't mean to say it isn't true. That night we went to Slough Gospel Tabernacle, and my dad, hard as nails, he wept his way to Christ. See, this is what I mean by Christian conversion. I've got to finish now, because, you know, you've ever so good, and it's I'm watching my watch, which is an hour fast. I'm nearly finished. But finally, you see, you've got the Apostle's call. Here it is. What I call the effectual call. For whom he new he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That he might be the firstborn of many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Great scripture in Romans, very profound. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Let the name of Jesus bring in our souls this morning. Jesus, Yahweh says, that's what it means, or if you like, Jehovah says, depending what you think the name of God is. Joshua in the Old Testament, Hebrew. Jesus in the Greek. The name of the Saviour is Jesus' Says That's why the angel said to Joseph, You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why you will call him by that name. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. The very name, the reminder... That he would save his people from their sins. The I am of the Old Testament. Given to Moses on the bush. You see there's a work for him to do. Before anything else can come to pass. Christ will deal with him. As saviour. That's the bottom line. Always. This man had a zeal for God. But it wasn't according to knowledge at that particular point and this profound Pharisee must be saved you know just to finish let me just say this because I know you're looking for a new pastor and I've been out preaching now just about every week well I can't remember in fact my wife said to me you're going to have to space it out because uh, we're away more than we're at our own uh, assembly she said, we're at our own church more in the weekends than we are, uh, more in the, uh, midweek than we are uh, on a Sunday. So I, I say that because I've not preached this sermon. Alright, this is for Lum, that I felt in my spirit that it was for Lum this morning. You're about to appoint a new pastor, and that's nothing to do with me because, you know, that's your personal business between you and the living God A he's got to be called of God and B he's got to be called to a specific place to a specific church now you're saying to me well surely every pastor's called of God I remember years ago I I, I was at at a a minister's meeting it was a regional meeting and the students were up from the Bible college and we were having dinner together and I said to this young man sitting next to me I said what are you doing next year he said I think I'll give pastoring the world have you ever felt you should have said something and didn't or perhaps you felt you said something and shouldn't I don't know and I thought, oh my, won't be long before you whirled out the front door. Knowing the call of God. But not only knowing the call of God, this mighty apostle was also called to the Jews and also to the Gentiles. He knew specifically what he was called to do and where he was called to do it. i leave that with you if you think I'm interfering or it's nothing to do with me, which it isn't really. You know, you leave it, put it to one side. But now the mighty Apostle Paul of God is able to say, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So over to you, Julie. Amen.